Y'all doing all right this morning? Yes. Good, good. I'm excited. I want to tell you something. I didn't tell the first service, but uh, last night, um, many of you know Gene Parkin. Um, he is the sound guy here, uh, the tech guy here. Uh, he's the architect guy here. He's the whatever goes wrong, Gene fixes it. Gene knows how to fix it. Gene figures out how to fix it. Uh, I've been serving I know, baby, it's all right. I was just choked up because the baby was crying. But um, some of y'all need to get more sensitive. I uh, have been ser- serving with Gene for a long, long time. We've, we've grown old together in ministry. And uh, thankfully, we have many, many, many more years to serve God as far as we know. Amen? And uh, last night, um, while playing... Uh, video games with his son, Gene started to have the symptom. Yeah, we used to play video games, okay? And um, he started having the symptoms of a stroke and uh, scared everybody, scared his family to death. Um, and it got so bad that they life-flighted him uh, to Kennestone. And long story short, they sent him home. All the tests came back negative. He had no. Uh, my, my, my first thought was, well, that ain't right. Because I'm a Christian. And, you know, sometimes when things like that happen, we want to explain it so that it makes sense to us. But I forgot who God is. Just for a second. I was thankful for Kelly, who reminded all of us. She said, I'm just choosing to believe that the moment all those people were mobilized in prayer, God answered them. And that there is no explanation, as the doctor said, as to why he went from where he was to where he is. But we know the reason. And so God healed him, and he is at home this morning. If you get a chance to listen to this this week, Gene, I'm not sure why you're not here. I mean, God took care of everything, so (laughs) toughen up, buddy. (laughs) We we talked a little bit about this scripture last week. We're in a, a season of fasting as a church. We are participating in a corporate fast, which you see throughout Scripture, has a number of reasons um, for doing something like that. There is the reason of mourning, uh, the loss of someone, the loss of something. Jesus described that longing, that mourning as Christ's return. At some point, I'm going to leave, and then they will fast, he said, and Sometimes we fast in as a result of mourning for sin, which we'll see here in a little bit. And then we also fast so because it's a, it's a spiritual discipline that allows for God to move distractions in our life that keep us from hearing Him, seeing Him, and being fully in His presence. Not because God withholds Himself from us, but because we oftentimes withhold ourselves from Him. Amen? 
And we need that stripping away, if you will, that fasting allows for. One of the reasons that people would fast also in Scripture is because they needed God to move. They needed God to do something about their situation. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16, it says, and we read this last week, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, backstory: There was a man named Haman who was so prideful that he believed that everyone should acknowledge him because of the position that he held within the government of Susa. Okay, In this culture, if you held a certain position of power, then when you walked into a room, it commanded respect. People needed to behave in such a way that they noticed, whoa, 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 stop talking. He's here. The problem with that is, is the Jews rightfully considered that worship. And Mordecai refused to acknowledge Haman. One time when he was coming into the city or coming into a room, he he came in somewhere, and Mordecai didn't even act like he noticed Haman was there. It made him so angry that Haman tricked the king into signing a decree and sealing it with his ring that would ultimately give permission for the entire region to kill every Jew in their area. Now, before all of this happened, the king had taken Esther as one of his wives. Esther and Mordecai were related. So Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you have to do something. You have to go to the king and tell him he's about to make a grave mistake. He doesn't know what's going on. You have to go do something. Esther is rightfully afraid. If I go before the king and he has not summoned me, it is punishable by death. And Mordecai says to her, arguably, one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture, how do you not know that it was not for this very reason God created you? And so Esther hears those words, and she calls the nation to fast on her behalf. And she says, and thus I will go into the king, which is against the law, and if I die... I die. What's interesting is Esther's perspective toward God and her view of what the fast might accomplish. And what's incredible is that regardless of how God may or may not have responded to the fast, no one's position in regard to the relationship between them and God was going to change. Do you see that here? Like, we live in a culture because we've been conditioned since we were very young, if I do good, you do good to me, right? How many of you have ever been in a store with a child 
and you told that child, listen, if you will just shut your mouth, don't ask me for nothing. When we get out of this store, I will, I promise I will make sure I will whatever, right? I will fix the McDonald ice cream machine myself and serve you if you will be quiet. We're conditioned to behave that way in every aspect of our lives. And what's, what's discouraging for me personally is that it's bled over into my faith in the way that I see God sometimes. I've even had people say things like, I was like 20-something years old. I didn't know anything, and I know just a little bit more than I did then now. But anyway, I was going through some stuff. All kinds of things were breaking. We had no money. It, did anybody, nobody has money when they're like 20, right? Everything's breaking. We can't afford to fix anything. And somebody from the church, a leader, asks me, are you tithing? I mean, so we're conditioned to believe that if I do right, God owes me something. I mean, this person was literally teaching me. I was impressionable. I spent a large portion of my life trying to figure out, well, now I am. What, what is up? What's happening now? Is there something else missing from this transaction? Like I'm giving God my time. I'm giving God my life. I'm giving him everything. Still can't get an AC through the summer. What's happening? I need to relook at the terms of this contract. Because that's not how God works. There is a group of people, and we've talked about this before, and I saw almost every week I need to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and just read about these people. In the long line of these great people of faith, you get to this section of this group of people, and they don't even have names. But we know that during the time that they lived, God didn't say anything. We know that during the time that they lived, God never did anything. It was just a period where nothing spectacular whatsoever, not a prayer was answered of significance, not a miracle of significance, nothing worth recording in history happened. And yet God says about them, they never lost hope. They never lost faith. I walk away from that passage of Scripture and I sit in my time with God. And I fight shame. Because I want to be able to see my God as not a gift giver, but as holy. Like, like a provisional, forever sustaining holiness. Do you understand what I'm talking about? You see, it's difficult for us, ain't it? Because we use microwaves. Some of you will get up tomorrow and you will go to work and you will tell somebody, I didn't have time to eat breakfast. What you're actually saying is, there was all kinds of food in my house. But in order for me to have it for breakfast, I had to prepare it. And I don't have time for that. That's what we're really saying, right? We like things like Hot Pockets. Who still eats a Hot Pocket? Raise your hand. You know, you know where those came from, right? It's where the people who don't know Jesus are going. There's nothing good about those things. All they do is cause you pain. 
Have you ever bitten into a hot pocket and the first thing out of your mouth was, mmm, that's so good? No, you're worried about how much skin is going to come off the top of your mouth. There's nothing good about anything that comes quickly except salvation. Everything else takes time. God, listen, he don't sprint. Your urgency doesn't move him. I'm convinced if I'm urgent about it or if I need it right now, God intentionally goes, <laughs> not really, because that's how a human would act. But do you understand the context of what I'm saying? You need to learn a lesson, young man. We want that we give up so quickly. So quickly. See, Esther's, Esther's view of God was understanding his sovereignty. Ours is, I've been good, where's my treat? God is sovereign. What that means is that he, he, the simplest way of saying it, he's, he's all-powerful. He's always in control and will never stray from his intended plan. He can't be deterred from it. There's nothing that can even cause God to blink or flinch, whether it benefits you, hurts you, strengthens you, or doesn't even consider you. For some of us, that's difficult. That's difficult for us to grasp. Because we've grown up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. So many of the songs that we sang conditioned us to believe that all of heaven was just on edge on your behalf. And that is not the case. You ought to be on edge. That he would be, as Scripture says, mindful of you. Your place in the entire story is one of redemption for God's glory. And now you praise him. That's it. God has given you Jesus. He has taken care of every problem and every issue you will ever have. Your time on earth to God, a blink would seem like it took eternity. Your time on God, on, your time is an eternal time. God took care. You get to be with me. I kind of like to think, because this is difficult, this is knowledge, right? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, just not an affirmation. Most of you know this, right? You know this. It's the application. I mean, it's, it's the simplest most difficult thing you'll ever do. We struggle to understand what it means to wait upon the Lord, right? Listen, if, if we went home today and, and we lost our job, the heat went out, unrepairable, car broke down, unrepairable, Kids, do I have to say anything else about that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? 
like most of us, we would be struggling with our faith. You see, when I sit before God, one of the first things I ask him, God, is my response to you right now because of the way life is going or is it still because of who you are? Like, am I happy right now because you're holy or am I happy right now because circumstances have allowed for it? Will I be happy tomorrow if all of this is stripped away and there's nothing left? If I am Job in the wilderness sitting in the dirt with it on my head and covering me from head to toe with not a thing to my name, will I still say, praise the name of Jesus? Or will I fall to pieces? What is the source of what is within me, me or you? It's difficult. It's difficult to get. But yet all of, all of Scripture, Jewish doctrine, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. If you would have asked them, why is God so good? Why is God so great? Why is God so holy? I am. No, but why? I just told you why. I am. Always was. Always is. And forevermore will be. That's it. That's why. I don't, but don't you want something for him? I'm not even going to go, go anywhere near a place to ask him. Do you understand who he is? Be careful as you go and approach the house of the Lord. Let your words be Few. Do you understand his holiness? So Esther's isn't even, her statement isn't even one of discouragement. If I live, praise God. If I die, praise God. Esther and the, and, and the entire nation of the Jews, they understood this. To them, listen to me, in the name of Jesus Christ and to us, God isn't God because of what he can give. God isn't God because of what he will do. But God is God because he is God. Do you understand that? <laughs> Apart from his sovereign will, God will not move for any reason. God will not change anything. Outside of that, God moves. God even moves because people fasted, because people prayed, because people sought the face of the Lord. So we fast for God to move, and sometimes he does. Amen, church? And we praise him. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews. He establishes this holiday that Jews still observe to this day because God moved the hand of the king. God killed Haman on the gallows that he created for Mordecai and completely redeemed the Jewish people. And what did they do? They established a holiday for him to which on that day Everything ceases but praising and rejoicing because of who God is, because of what God did, and because who he, for, for who he will forever be. 
we forget sometimes the last time God did anything for us, and yet you woke up this morning and drove somewhere. We fast for God to move, and sometimes he does. And when he does, we praise. Amen, church? Sometimes he doesn't. And in those cases, it's a little different. We praise. I've asked God to do things. I've fasted for things, and God didn't do them. I've fasted, and God didn't respond. But nothing about our relationship changed. That wasn't always true. I've been a conditional Christian. I have been a conditional Christian. I've told you those stories of how I've struggled. Like, God, I, I've given you like this, I've given you two whole hours of my life. Like, why isn't heaven, why isn't the blessing just raining down in gold pieces? Like, I've lived my life like that. Complain. I deserve this. But thankfully, I've gotten to that place where I realize that just the fact that God is on his throne, amen, hallelujah, holy, 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 right, church? I've finally gotten to that place where I'm, where I'm able to ask for wisdom to understand this is key that I don't understand. Because I've even been caught up in the pride of saying, God, what's the lesson you want to teach me in all this? Because there's still got to be some reason why you're doing this to me. you got to be careful with that too. God, if there's a lesson that you're trying to teach me, help me be able to see it. I'm not trying to teach you anything. How about you pray one time that if there's absolutely no reason for me doing this other than the fact that I'm the sovereign God of all creation and that I just want you to endure it, that'd be okay. Why has there got to be a lesson? Sometimes there is, church. Don't miss it. But sometimes the lesson is just that there isn't a lesson. Can you dig it? Can you get down with that? Can you still call him holy? Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. If God explained it to you, you wouldn't get it. And sometimes in that is comfort. I don't want to be able to explain to everyone going through everything, this is exactly what God's doing. Because then, where's my confidence? My ability to explain it to them. But man, I'll get to sweating and turn hot when somebody asks me a question. Well, if God so many and they want to, huh? Mmm, that's a good one. I don't like that. I don't like that. I can't explain that. I don't know. There's a little thing in here. There's a little thing in Hebrews called faith. And it's the assurance of things hoped for. That's all I have. It's the confidence in what I can't see. That's God's definition of faith. You, what do I do, God? You just know. Just know. We fast because sometimes God moves. And when he does, we praise him. And we fast because sometimes God 
doesn't move. And when he doesn't, we praise him. There's a story in the Bible of an awful, awful man named King David. David was where he wanted to be in this story instead of where he was supposed to be. As a matter of fact, the story starts out in the season, or depending on the translation, in the time of year when kings go to war. So it starts off right out of the bat telling you, David ain't where he's supposed to be. And when you ain't where you're supposed to be, when you're not where God wants you to be, you get what you get. You get exactly what you're looking for. And David stood on top of his house, and he looked out over Jerusalem, and he thought, look at everything that I have done. Look at me. I am all-powerful. I am. And while he was worshiping himself, he saw Bathsheba. And he took Bathsheba, and he had an affair with her, and then sent her home. And then he got on his face after realizing his sin. Nope. He tried to cover it up. What if she gets pregnant? Somebody go get her husband. You know who her husband was? It's cool if you know the name, but it's more important that you know his position. He was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his, ahu, ahu, that guy. Sends for him, has him brought back. Here's what I'll do. I'll bring Uriah back. He asks him a little bit, how the war going? How's the war? You know, how's everything going? Great, cool. Go home to your wife. You can go back to the war tomorrow. He's thinking if Uriah goes into his wife and they, then if she gets pregnant, some of y'all still, when a man and woman, I'm just kidding. Then if she gets pregnant, no harm, no foul. Nobody knows any, nobody's none the wiser because Uriah, well, you remember Uriah came home from the, and well, Uriah was a man of integrity. He should have been king. In regard to how we see things, he was an honorable man. He was a man full of integrity. And his perspective was, I will not enjoy the comforts of my home while my brothers lay in the dirt at war. And so he slept in the dirt outside where the king had questioned him. David found out the next day, and as a result of that testimony, David realized, I've made a grave mistake. Nope. David wrote up a letter, an assassination, an assassination note to have Uriah murdered so that he could take Bathsheba as quickly as possible as, as his wife so that when, if and when she becomes pregnant, no harm, no foul. Remember, Uriah died in battle. Then I took her. As, it's all good. So that's what David was thinking. You know what else he did? Because he's a classy guy. He gave Uriah his assassination note, and had him deliver it. Great friend. It's a whole other sermon for a different day, right? Uriah takes this note back. We know that Uriah dies. David, after hearing about Uriah's death, he feels terrible. He repents. Nope. What he did was he took Bathsheba, just like he planned to, made her his wife. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. When Bathsheba becomes pregnant, David realizes, what have I done? Nope. What happened was Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and says, David, can I tell you a story? 
Sure. Could you imagine being in that room at the time this has happened? Nathan's got everybody. David's like, shh, 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 shh. he's a great storyteller. <laughs> Could you be like Nathan? Yeah, you're going to love this one, buddy. He tells him a story. He says, and then there was a king who decided to throw a big feast. And when he decides to throw that big feast, instead of taking from all the flocks of all the available sheep that he could have taken and slaughtered and prepared for his guests, what he did was he found a family who had a precious lamb that they treated as a child that was a member of their family. They only had one, and he cut its throat and served it to his guests. The Bible says that in that moment, upon hearing that story, the king became enraged, and he said, you tell me who that, who did that. Who is the man? And Nathan stood up and said, you are the man. And in that moment... David had, a, had, a, had an experience of God's grace, and he repented and realized his sin. God never changes. And while you may repent, and while you may experience his grace, and while you may experience his mercy, and while you may experience his loving kindness, it does not absolve you of the consequences of your sin. And it did not absolve David, no matter how much he repented or how much ash he heaped upon his head or how much he worshiped. The Bible says, prayed and fasted without ceasing. It did not absolve him of the consequences of his sin. The baby was born. The baby became sick. The baby died. But what I want us to focus on is David's response, because I can be self-righteous sometimes. And when I repent, and when I turn and change and transform and begin to live right, I also am during those times tempted to believe that God owes me something. And so I find great comfort in David's response. Having heard that the baby had died, David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that, that word thanksgiving means to rejoice or rejoicing, let your requests be made known to God. Somebody read to me the part where it says about him answering, how he answers our prayer, Wouldn't, how, how, he, how he's moved to respond. It's not in there. It's not there. doesn't say anything about that, does it? It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Let God know. What, what, what is it? What's the desire of your heart? And then this incredibly powerful line, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There was a little old lady that went to the church I grew up in. I'll never forget how she used to always say, I'm at peace. I gave it to God. I gave it to God. I'm at peace. Hey, whatever happened with the, I turned it over to the Lord. I'm at peace. I don't know how a single one of her prayer requests turned out. But I do know this, 
She turned it over to God, and she was at peace. And that was an impression on me. It was a seed, right? You feel me, church? It laid in the, in the ground for a long time, but it finally took root. We have true peace when we understand where that peace really comes from. God says, pray and rejoice. Pray and worship. Have peace. I am sovereign. Turn it over to me. I will always go back to that passage in Psalms where the psalmist writes, to those who delight in the Lord, he will give them the desires of their heart. And forever, I used to think, if I can just live righteously enough, because I finally moved, well, that's not true. When I was a younger man, I just quoted the second half. Well, the Bible tells me God's going to give me the desires of my heart. Well, I ain't even worried about it because the Bible tells me that God's going to give me the desires of my heart. I, didn't, I ignored the first part. To those who delight, it, nothing else sustains or quenches any of their desires but God. To them, he gives the desires of their heart. Do you know what the desire of a heart is that delights in the Lord? The Lord. Those who delight in the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says about this. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. Somebody has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Also, historically, incorrectly interpreted to mean that if I ask God enough, he'll give me for whatever it is I'm asking him of. False! Jesus is referencing the psalmist who said to those who delight in me. That's the persistence, the delighting. We're delighting in God. We're pursuing God. We have nothing that we want. Every answer to any request and prayer is your holy presence, oh God. And so through prayer and supplication, here are my requests, oh God. I've given it to the Lord. I'm at peace. Jesus says, because of that persistent, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. God will pour out for you as much of him as you can stand. And that's what Jesus is talking about. We fast because God will move. He's a good and gracious God. I want to know him more. I want to delight in him. I want to just sit. I want to have my life interrupted because I'm with the Lord, not to have the Lord interrupted because of life all the time. How many times we've walked away from prayer sessions because of a phone call or text? It could have waited. How many times we've walked away from God moving in our lives? And when I say moving, just him being there with us because some distraction that we decided in that moment was more worthy. God says, no, if you delight in me, if you chase me with everything that you are, 
you will get me and all of me that you need. Keep knocking. Keep fasting. Keep praying. Some of us are so steadfastly looking forward to the end of the 21-day fast that we've never paused for one second to ask God, longer? Sometimes it's through that persistence, through that. See, once we're all empty, all that pours out after pursuing and seeking and prayer and worshiping and, and thanksgiving, all that pours out is exactly what's been poured in, and that's Christ. So you keep praying. You keep fasting. You keep asking. You keep trusting. Don't quit short of the finish line. And whatever happens, whether it turns out to be exactly what you expected it to be or whether it turns out to be nothing but the fact that you fasted for 21 days or three months or whatever it is, and all God did was allow for you to sit in his presence, praise his holy name, church. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. I get it. It's hard to clap for that. We got to recondition our hearts, right, church? We live in the United States. I want sushi, pow-pow. I'm going to Kroger right now. That's what we do. There's not a thing for most of you in this room, there's not a thing that you could want today that you couldn't go out there and get right now within reason. And so the audacity of somebody like me to stand up here and to tell you that's not God's best for you, that mentality, that way of thinking, that's not how God works. I know it's difficult. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. If there's healing or if there's no healing, if there's a change financially or no change financially, if I'm successful or the laughing stock of the entire world, I don't want to be anywhere my God isn't. David's captains stood back to back in the battle, surrounded by an unconquerable enemy, just the two of them, back to back. If it gets too big, holler at me. I'll come. If it gets too big for me, I'll holler at you. You come. And maybe the Lord will do something. Or maybe we die. Nothing changed about the way they saw him. God is holy God before I ever knew what a request was. The band would come up, close out with this. It's a powerful story. I didn't notice this until I had grown up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Be encouraged, church. 
If you're feeling some pressure, we all, we all got to get this right. Then but three people get it right. Where are the rest of the Jews? All hail golden statue of nothing. It's okay to be different. It's okay to say no when everybody says yes. It's okay to say yes when, every, when everybody else is saying no. It's okay to stand up for what you know Scripture teaches regardless of what people are trying to push on you in terms of social or political agendas. It's okay to say that doesn't matter. Christ and Christ alone is what matters. Make disciples of all nations. If people become fully mature, baptized disciples, we won't have to have conversations about racism and murder and all these other things because Christ will absolve it. Do you understand that? It's the, it's it really, it's not cliche. It's not a t-shirt saying Jesus is the only answer. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? You know where the golden image came from? You know what it was the reproduction of? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know. God, through Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God shows up through a man of God and interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He repents and falls on. No, he takes control of the dream, makes a statue, and forces people to worship it. So he says, now, if you're ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. God, that's who, can save us from your hand. And I love this because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't say anything to suggest what God is going to do because in the reality, they don't know. But look at what they say right after that. Right after saying God can save us, the language implies we don't know if he is or if he isn't. But look what they said. And he will deliver us out of your hand. It will be better that God deliver us or that God not deliver us. Do you understand what they're saying? Either way, nothing is going to change about who our God is. If we live to God be the glory, if we die, we stand in God's glory. You have no power over us. There's a huge declaration being made there. And here it is. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
we fast because when we fast, God moves. And when he does, we praise him. And so we fast because when we fast, God moves. But even if he does not, we praise him. Whether he moves, whether he doesn't move, whether he speaks, whether he's silent, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, this morning you've been so good to us. You've blessed us and you've kept us. You've made your face to shine upon us. You've given us peace. And so we delight in you. We delight in nothing else. In Christ's holy name, amen.